So open your Bibles, please, if you have one, to Hebrews chapter 9. If you don't have one, get one. If you don't have one and you want one, we have them for you in the back. Grab one. God's Word is an important and instrumental and foundational in your growth as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't really know Him unless you know His Word, that He revealed Himself to us through the Scripture. If anyone's counting, today begins my 14th year as lead pastor. Some of you might be happy, some maybe not so happy, but... (laughs) Um, we're in Hebrews 9 I always always the first Sunday of January reminds me of our time with you just love 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 being here with y'all and um, and the rest of the pastoral team I'm sure so open up Hebrews 9 is where we are the human author is unknown but God its divine author has breathed out his word as men spoke being carried along by the Holy Spirit Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. Hear the word, the word of the living God. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. That's a key to the passage. For, t- for a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstands and the table of the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the tables of the covenant. Above it were the cherubims of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year and not without taking blood, which he offered for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not just opened as long as the first section is still standing, not yet. Verse 9, which is symbolic of the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect, perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then Through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not this creation, verse 12, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing or obtaining an eternal redemption. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Quick reminder, we have a Jewish congregation here is under severe persecution. And in their persecution, they're being tempted to go back to the old covenant ways. Ways of ceremonies and practices found in the Old Testament, in particular the law of Moses that was handed down from God to Moses. They were, they were, they were tempted to go back to, go back to those old ways, old covenant ways, to find their hope in the midst of persecution, their strength to get through persecution their focus, and for their salvation. So the author writes this letter. Its purpose was to declare the supremacy, the sufficiency, and superior, 
superiority of Christ as an exhortation to them to remain faithful in the midst of hardship and in the midst of persecution. Although the author has already shown us how Jesus is better and superior than to angels and to Moses, to Joshua, to the promised land, the land of rest, he has had a lot to say about Jesus being the better and superior priest, or in particular, better and superior high priest. In fact, Jesus' priesthood is mentioned way back in chapter 1, and as I look this week, he's called the high priest or the great high priest in every chapter leading up to chapter 9. Remember, the priests of the Old Testament covenant worship were called to, or were ordained to offer sacrifices for its sins required by the law. They cared for the religious articles. We're going to talk about that today. They oversaw the worship activities, instructed the people of the ordinances of God that was happening within the worship of the temple or the tent or the tabernacle. And there was the priest, but there was also known as the high priest, a.k.a. also known as the chief priest or the chief among the brothers or the, the, the anointed priest. This high priest, um, in addition to performing regular sacrifices that the priests would do in their rituals, he alone was the only one allowed into what's called the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement to sacrifice for the nation of Israel. And the office of high priest was a, was a, was a, a very important role to a certain degree of holiness. Of course, the priest, the high priest, came from the lineage of Aaron, who came from the Levites, which was the priestly tribe of Israel. In fact, the high priest, if the high priest sinned, he actually brought guilt upon the whole nation. Last week in chapter 8, the author stressed the superiority of Christ as the high priest to all, all the Old Testament priests, all the Old Testament high priest, and then if you remember, he transitioned from Jesus being the greatest superior priest and high priest, he transitioned to say that that makes Jesus the better and greater mediator of a better and greater covenant. From priesthood, the great priesthood, to a better, create, a better mediation of a better covenant enacted on better promises. Okay, you find that in chapter 8. Okay, and we've seen that transition and that's where we're kind of at. We looked a little bit at it yesterday. And, you know, so we need to ask the question, what does that mean? What is it? We understood he's the better and greater high priest. We have a lot of reason to believe that and to know that now since we read what the author has said in the inspiration of the Spirit. Um, but how does, how does Jesus' high priestly superiority make him a, a better, make him a, a mediator of a better covenant? And the author hints to that to somewhat if you look at chapter 8, verse 5. He says this, they, chapter 8, verse 5, they, meaning the, the earthly priest, they serve the temple as a copy, of a, a shadow of the heavenly things. When Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that ha- was shown you on the mountain. Okay? In other words, God comes to Moses in this Mosaic law, in this old covenant promise, and says, you're going to build me a tent, a a temporary movable dwelling place where I will come and I will meet you, I will meet the people, they will worship me there, but do it this way. And we've known already, and we're we're going to see it even more today, in the way in which he told Moses to do this was pointing to the realities, what was temporary was pointing to the realities of, of Christ. And when Jesus would come, they would say, oh, I get it now. We said last week that this tent, this tabernacle, 
in, 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 the, in the wandering of, of the Israelites, when they built this in the, in, in the wandering, it then became the temple in Solomon's day, was a foreshadow pointing to something, that the priesthood was a foreshadow, the, the sacrifices were a foreshadow, the feasts were foreshadows, so that when Christ came, again, they would say, we get it. Kind of a pregame to the big game. Unfortunately, the New England won't be there, but that's another story. But Christ, it says in chapter 8, verse 2, man, two applause in one day, I'm, I'm on a roll. Chapter 8, verse 2 says, Christ is the true ten. He will come. The reality will come. In other words, what he's saying is, all the Old Testament foreshadows the true and better covenant, the new covenant, which is superior because it's the real thing. It's the final thing. It's the forever thing. It is the finished work of Christ that was pictured in the Old Testament. That, that's, that's, that's why Jesus is a, is a, is a, mediates a better covenant. But he goes on further, and he says that the old covenant was more of an external work. Remember, that's where we ended yesterday. That the new covenant, he mentioned Jeremiah 31, uh, in chapter 8 of, uh, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 8, verses 8 through 12, the author quotes Jeremiah from the Old Testament, who speaks of a better covenant, a new covenant that would come, and it would be an internal work. That the old covenant was broken by the people of God and therefore became ineffective for it never really accomplished the communion God desired for his people. But the new covenant would be different, that mediated by Christ. We said it would have new power. The law of God is written on our minds and on our hearts. Chapter 10, be a new people. I will be their God. They will be my people. Chapter 10 again, C. They have a new position. Verse 11, everyone will know me. All my neighbors, everybody who knows him will have this relationship with God. And lastly, I have a new provision where we ended in verse 12 of chapter 8. For I will be merciful toward their iniquity. I'll remember their sins no more. It's not just under the old covenant, sins were covered, but now in the new covenant, this internal work of God where the law is written, there'll be a new people, a new position, there'll be this new provision, the, 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 the sacrifice of Christ in the new covenant will remove sins completely forever. Now in chapter 9, the author explains and contrasts, contrasts the customs and practices of the old covenant worship. And he contrasts and compares it with the new covenant worship. Now just so you know, I think I might have mentioned this, I'm not sure. The word covenant is the same word as it's translated testament. Old Testament, New Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant. Same word. You could, you could, you could use both of those words. So what we're going to talk about today is Old Covenant worship. And we're going to get historical. So if you don't like history, I don't know what to tell you. We may not be, you may not be, maybe you are, I, I'm not, a physical descendant of Abraham, but we are spiritual descendants of Abraham. We learned that in Galatians. The Old Covenant, what was the worship like, teaches us something. And that's what the author's getting at, four things about Old Covenant worship. The place, the priests, the problem, all of Old Covenant worship, and lastly, and which we'll, we'll look at today and then we'll pick up next week, the provision of the New Covenant worship, okay? The place, the priest, the problem of the Old Covenant worship, and now the provision of the New Covenant. So in Hebrews chapter 1, the place. Now, even the first covenant, that's code word for old, 
The first covenant had regulations for worship. Where it began? And an earthly place of holiness. There was a place that they were to come and meet. Wherefore, a tent was prepared, the first section in which the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence, it's called the holy place. He's talking about a place within the tabernacle. I've got a picture for you. I'll show you in a minute. So what he's saying is, and if anybody's familiar with C.S. Lewis's Narnia books, you know, there's these ideas and characters all kind of pointing to the work, you know, the, the new covenant, the work of Christ and Christianity, and in a similar but ancient fashion, the Old Testament tent and tabernacle was set up. And old covenant worship happened, and it contained all kinds of symbols pointing to the redemption, the great redemption of what God was doing with that nation and what God would do in Christ, pointing to things within the Old Testament time to the realities of Christ. Now, just two things before we jump into the text. I just want to remind you of those two things we already looked at. Number one, we talked about the blood sacrifices, that the animals were being sacrificed, and part of that was to show us how sinful, broken, and heinous sin is. And also the substitutionary aspect of the atonement, of of forgiveness before God. We said in Leviticus 11 that God gave us the blood, the, that the life was in the blood, and by its death, one life was forfeited, and another one, uh, uh, life was, was, given, was given life, actually. The life of the innocent victim for the life of the sinful offerer was God's provision for atonement. And every year, the sacrifice were to point to how bad sin was and, and atonement was necessary. Also, we learn, and we're going to learn more about this today, you just can't walk into, you know, the presence of a holy God, a perfect, spotless, pure, holy, other God, you, you just can't walk in. You know, it was one of the things that um, uh, the, the, the movie um, Raiders of the Lost Ark got right, if you saw it. When the, when the Ark of the Covenant was open, the presence of God, their face got melted, you know, it just melted down. We can't stand in the presence of God. He is holy, all-powerful, and sovereign. And therefore, in the Old Testament worship, in this tent, in this tabernacle, the worship there was very restrictive, very meticulously calculated, coupled with wonderful and, and, and glorious symbols and signs pointing to a reality. That's what the tent and the tabernacle was. A portable tent in the middle of Israel's camp. Twelve tribes would, would, would camp around it, and it was pointing to something. Jesus, excuse me, God was teaching them something about worship. And if you were an Israelite in that day and you started approaching this place of worship, the first thing you would notice is the white linen walls, 150 feet long, 75 feet wide, and that white linen would be immediately teaching you about the, the, the holiness of God, his purity as you're walking toward this tabernacle, this tent. In the tent tabernacle, there were three main sections. The courtyard You walk in further, the holy place. You walk in even further, the most holy place. And that was done purposely. The deeper you go into the tabernacle, this tent. Okay, the tent and tabernacle is the same thing. I'm just going to say tabernacle. As you walk into this tabernacle, the deeper you got in, the closer into the presence of God, but also greater the barriers that we talked about would be. So some of you may not know this, but I have a picture up. Some of you do, and that's okay too. So this is the tabernacle that we're talking about. Here's the white walls, 
150 by 75, okay? Here the animals would come in and you have this brazen altar made of bronze. You have a brazen laver where the priest would come and wash their hands as a sign of purification, okay? Next within the tabernacle is what's called the holy place. The holy place was, was uh, um, covered with three layers of, of, of cloth, okay? Whoop, let me go back. Okay, so this is the outer courtyard. In here, right here, is the holy place. And that, if you have your Bibles open, this is what he's talking about. Okay, you had the holy place. In the holy place, there were, hold on one second, let me get this out. In the holy place, there was a lampstand. I'll show you that in a minute, even more so. There's a lampstand. There was a big lampstand, seven branches, three on both sides, one main piece of the lampstand. Um, they supplied oil. It was lit all the time. It burned continuously. And then our text tells us there was the showbread or the bread of presence, Exodus 25, which maps all this out in Exodus. It says, you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. When you build this tent, this is what I want you to do. Again, he told Moses exactly what he wants. And this, this, this 12 loaves of bread on this table uh, for the 12 tribes of Israel was only eaten by the priest and it was made new every, every week. And inside this holy place, okay, again, this is the outer court, the holy place, it was also uh, what is um, known as the, 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 the uh, incense that burned, okay? And you could see... Let me, let me see if I have the next one up. Okay, yeah, you can see, okay, this is the outer court here. As you walked in, this, this veil stopped you from going in. Only the priests were allowed in. You have the menorah or the lampstand. You have the showbread. And then you have this uh, uh, altar, this laven uh, of, of incense, where they would burn incense regularly in that place right here. And here, this this other veil stopped you. So this one stopped you. This one stopped you to get into the Holy of Holies, which was in there. That's what our author is talking about. You have the outer one. You have the outer court, the holy place, and then the most holy place. Okay? You need to understand that because that's what he's talking about, and we're going to talk a little bit more on what that means. The holy place, the sacrifices would happen out here, when you went into the holy place or the priests would go into the holy place, they were the only ones allowed in. And there they had that somewhat fellowship with God. There was, there was um, um, the incense, was, incense was, was there in the golden altar. And you were not allowed into the most holy place. You had to stay as a priest in that outer court. Not only this outer court, but the holy place. Okay, so... Out here is where sacrifices were made. Only the priests were allowed in here. And only the high priest, once a year, was allowed in there. And what he's saying is there was barriers. Okay, you following me so far? Because next, the author talks about the Holy of Holies. Look at your text. Okay, in chapter 9, verse 2. Behind the second curtain, okay, behind the second curtain was a section called the Most Holy Place. You see that? Verse 4, in the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense. We'll talk about that. The Ark of the Covenant, gold on every side. The urn with manna, Aaron's staff that budded. 
and the table of the covenant, the tablets of the covenant, and above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Okay, you follow me. The mercy seat. We'll talk about that too, okay? So, if you're following along, you're thinking, okay, wait a second. According to this, the golden incense was outside the Holy of Holies, and now our author is saying it was inside. You following? You see that in the text? If you're doing a Bible reading, you're like, oh, okay, wait a minute. That's why I'm like, oh, what's going on here? I think I read everybody I possibly could read on this. I think what makes most sense, since we're talking about, which we're going to get to, on what the Holy of Holies really means, because that's Jesus. What the author is saying, I think, is what he's saying is, on the Day of Atonement, on the Day of Atonement, the priest will come outside into this outer court. We're going to look at that closer, but he would sacrifice the animal on the Day of Atonement once a year, sacrifice the animal. He would take it from the outer court And as he went into the holy place, he would stop by here, grab some hot coals from this altar of incense, and take that into the holy of holies. Part of it went in with him. And he would take the coals, and he would put it on the Ark of the Covenant, and then the lamb's blood that was shed way outside in the outer court would be poured out on the coals, and the smoke would come up on the Day of Atonement. To me, that was the best understanding of what the author is trying to say. Okay? That's what would happen. And the atonement would be made on the Day of Atonement. I'm going to talk a little bit about Day of Atonement today, but next Sunday we're going to get deep into it. So inside the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, what does our, our, our author say? Was the Ark of the Covenant. Okay? This is what this looked like. Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, if you remember, is a sign of God's, not only God's covenant with Israel, it was his sovereignty, the presence of his sovereignty and rule over his people. The, the very presence of God in the Holy of Holies, the most inner sanctum of this temple area, is where God descended down once a year, Shekinah glory, his very presence inside this room. That's why there was barricades, because if it came down and you weren't ready, you weren't prepared, you didn't follow the strict regulations, you would die. I want you to see that, okay? And above the Ark of the Covenant were these golden cherubims is angelic-like beings representing the glory of God. That's what our text tells us as well. And right under it, very important, this is called the mercy seat, where the atonement was made. Under the mercy seat in here, what, did the, what, the script, what does the Scripture tell us? The Scripture tells us there was three things in there. Okay? You're thinking, really, we need to do all this? Yes. The mercy seat inside with well, the cherub and the mercy. Inside was Aaron's staff, the golden pot of manna, and the Ten Commandments, okay? Now, the jar full of manna is, is, is a, a sign of God's provision for his people. It was a symbol that God had, when God delivered them out of Egypt in their earthly redemption, he provided food for them in the wilderness, Aaron's staff that's in there that's budded. If you know the story from number 17, God told Moses, get all the Israelite heads of the families together, all 12 tribes, have their staffs, and in the morning one will bud. And the one that buds is the one that I will choose to be my priests. It was Aaron. His staff budded, and therefore his family lineage will be the priest. 
okay? Also, we have the tablets of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, are all inside this Ark of Covenant and inside the Holy of Holies. All these were signs and symbols of the power of God, the provision of God, the nearness of God, and the glory of God, all inside the Holy of Holies. And nobody, nobody in all the Old Testament times of worship could go into that place except the high priest once a year. And as I said, on top of this, the mercy seat, very important, the mercy seat, gold-plate covering, where the blood of the atonement was sprinkled on the Day of Atonement that propitiated the sins of Israel. In other words, it, God's wrath was poured out on that sacrificial animal at the time. It averted his justice. It, sat, excuse me, it averted his wrath, and it satisfied his justice with that atonement. So they would kill an animal, As we mentioned, it was sacrificed, it was atoned, uh, it it made atonement for sins, and God's justice was satisfied for the moment, and his wrath averted right there on that mercy seat. Once a year on the day of atonement. The priest would go into the holy place regularly with the menorah, with the, with the, with the, uh, the, the, the lampstand, and he would do all those things there with the showbread and the incense, but no... No one goes into the Holy of Holies but once a year. And that was separated by a very thick curtain. That was Old Testament worship. Okay? That was Old Testament worship. Let me, let me just show you one other thing real quick before we move on because this is important. As an Israelite, when you brought your sacrifices regularly to the, to the worship temple, to the temple for worship, I should say, you could come in, but that's as far as you went. You'd bring yours, you see this man standing there. You would, you would bring your sacrifice in, but only the priests were allowed in here and only the high priest once a year. You see the barricade, you see the issues, right? So, that is Old Testament worship, the place of worship. So now, let's move to the priest. Look at verse six, and we'll wrap this all up, don't worry. These preparations, everything I just said, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section. Not the Holy of Holies. He's talking about the holy place. Bread of presence. The lampstand. That place. He goes in performing their duty. So as a worshiper, that's as far as you went. You went as far as the bronze altar, the bronze burnt where they, where they sacrificed the animal. You didn't get into that other place. But the priest went in there regularly. Into the holy place. Not the most holy place, but the holy place. And you, if you were a priest, you would, you would take your turn. You would choose, they would choose lots. And, uh, and, and priests were assigned daily to do regularly the burning, the, the, the sacrifice on that bronze altar, washing his hands in, in, the, in the basin and going into the holy place. And that would be happening every year. I mean, every day, okay? They would weekly, you know, change the bread and do all those things. Now, just think for a moment with me. After everything I just said, how vital was the priest in the Old Testament, Old Covenant worship? Very vital, right? They did all that work for you as a regular Jew and not a priest. Having grown up in, in, in the Roman Catholic tradition, I'm not here to bash them, I'm just saying. I'm going to go on a quick bunny trail here, but I think it's important. 
Attending Mass as a small boy, it was made very clear to me that the priests within the Catholic tradition were extremely vital to the worship of God's people. In the same way the Old Testament, Old Covenant worship is in those days. In fact, the Catholic Church believes that the Old Testament, the Old Covenant priesthood is a foreshadow of the New Covenant Church. St. Thomas Aquinas, a Catholic priest and theologian of the 13th century, said this, Christ is the source of all priesthood. The priest of the Old Law, the Old Covenant, was a figure of Christ, and the priest of the New Law, New Covenant, acts in the person of Christ. St. Ignatius, he's a Catholic priest and theologian of the 15th and 16th century, said this, through the ordained ministry, especially that of the bishops and the priests, the presence of Christ as head of the church is made visible through those bishops and priests, in the midst of the community of believers. In other words, what they teach in the Catholic tradition from Rome is that the Pope and the bishops and the common priests are compared to, in many ways, to the Old Testament priests who cared for the temple. The priests were assigned, and the new uh, the Catholic priests were assigned to for the duty of offering the cup and the bread, known as the Eucharist. And again, uh, uh, Ignatius says this, the redemptive sacrifice of Christ is accomplished once and for all, yet it is made in the Eucharist sacrifice of the church. In other words, this authority that the priest receives is a direct line from the apostolic succession and any valid sacrament, this Eucharist, depended upon the ordination and the powers given to them by the Pope, by the bishops. He also writes, this 16th century priest, A priest is a person who by his ordination, by his ordination, has received the power to communicate God's grace through the sacraments as no other Christian, end quote. How important then is having a priest in the Roman Catholic tradition? Again, I'm not here to bash my Catholic friends or determine anyone's soul. I'm declaring the word of God. The necessity of the work of the priest for anyone to have access to God has been completely done away with by the fulfillment and the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Old Testament worship, they had their place. They had their rules. They had their office and what they used to do and all the things that they did. The Apostle Peter makes it very clear, I mentioned this last week, about the priesthood of every believer, 1 Peter 2, 9. But you, church, you, the people of God, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies, bring him glory, those of you who have been called out of darkness into God's marvelous light. The doctrine the truth of the priesthood of every believer was brought out in the Reformers, one of a, a, a strong Baptistic distinctives that each of us have access to God. So let me just say one more thing. Well, actually, three quick things. What does it mean that we believe in the priesthood of every believer? Number one, it means that all of us, brothers and sisters in Christ, listen, are equal in the eyes of God. That we are all created in the imago Dei, in the image and likeness of God. There's no one, no matter what role, has greater value or dignity than anyone else. 
Genesis 1, 26 and 27. In fact, in Galatians chapter 3, in context of salvation, Paul's talking about salvation. We talked about this when we did Galatians. In the context of salvation, Paul says this, there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, nor male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This passage does not negate gender roles or church roles and responsibilities of elders and deacons. It's not authority. He's talking about equality and salvation. We are all equal. We all, we all are equal before God. That's what the priesthood of believers means. Next, it means that we all have responsibilities and roles and, and, and to play for ministry. It's not just my job to serve and love Jesus. Right, as priests, it says that we are all to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. It's our spiritual act of worship, Romans 12. We are all giving ourselves over as instruments for God's glory and to do God's will. And we are all royal priests, in a sense, to love one another, to love a lost world, to declare and demonstrate the gospel. We are represented as ambassadors, 2 Corinthians 5 says. That's our role. We're equal. We have equality. We have ministry together, and we have accessibility, and that's what he's talking about here in verse 7. He's contrasting the accessibility of the Old Testament here in verse 7 to that of the New. But into the second most holy place, the second place, the most holy place, only the high priest goes. Yeah, that's Old Testament stuff. But he did it once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offered for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. We'll talk a lot more about that next week. Only he was allowed in to this holy place. The very presence of God came down to Shekinah glory. But now because of Christ who has our high priest, he has entered into the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God. Now we have access, every believer, not just priests. Every believer has access, direct access to God because of Christ. He's the only mediator to Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy. There's only one mediator between God and man. And, And that man is Christ Jesus. All believers have the right into the presence of God. Okay? Now, now watch this. this is cool. The English word for temple in your Bible, whether you have a New American Standard, ESV, whatever, the English word temple that's in your Bible all throughout the New Testament, talk about the New Testament, the Greek. There are two Greek words that are used and both translated temple. And sometimes you don't know which one it is because the, uh, the, the translators don't tell you. Okay? There is the word for temple in the Greek called heron, which talks about the temple in the outer court. Not the holy place, not the holy of holies, but the outer court. Court of the Gentiles, the court of the women, the place where you could bring your, your, your sacrifice in, the outer areas. Heron. Jesus, uh, it says, taught in the heron, the outer court. Jesus tossed the money changes in the heron, the outer court of the Gentiles. There's this outer court. But there's another Greek word that's naos, which is translated temple as well. That's the holy place, the most holy place. So in your Bible, when you're reading your New Testament, you receive the word temple, it's one or the other. You you may not know it. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Listen to this. This is cool. First he says, flee from sexual morality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual moral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know? That your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Glorify God with your body, right? Your body is a temple. Naos. 
Not outer court, not where anybody can go, but the innermost place. Now the New Testament, the new covenant, says that God's dwelling place is where? In us. You can't get more personal than that. That's why he says glorify God with your body. Glorify God with your body. Because it's the dwelling place of the living God. Only once a year, once a year the high priest could go into the dwelling place of God. Think about that. 364 days a year, no real presence of God. Only once. And yet the day of atonement happens in Christ. And the dwelling place now, Paul says, is in us. The priest had a role in the Old Testament. But that blown wide open in the new. It had some other problems. Look with me, verse 8. By this, the old, by this, all the barriers we've been talking about, by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened. All the barriers, everything we've been talking about, the holy place, the outer court, the, the holy place, the, the, the holy of holies, is not yet open. It's still standing under the old covenant, which is symbolic of the present age of what's going on today. That, that, in that day, of course. According to this arrangement, gifts, sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect or perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only, verse 10, with food and drink and various washing regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation, Martin Luther. No, just kidding, but time of reformation. What the author's trying to show us, and we're going to get there, he's just taking us there, is that the innermost holy place is a key to understanding all of what Christ has done and all that he is, is in that place, that place that no one was allowed to go in. And the whole time, now think about this, you're a priest. If you're a priest and you're in the holy place and you're ministering to the showbread, you're, you're filling the oil for the lamps, you're, you're, you're adding coals to the incense uh, container, what are you learning in there? I'm not going through that place. I'm staying right here. That's unapproachable. I I can't get into every day you're reminded there's a barrier and I can't go past it. And you might look at that big veil, which is very thick, on this big, you know, open, uh, closed area and thinking, that's as far as I go. I have no direct access to God. The, The point of the tabernacle system of worship was on the one hand, God wants to have fellowship with us. He, he wants to have communion with us. He wants to have relationship with us. But on the other hand, it's not open yet. And the author is saying, listen, the Holy Spirit is trying to show you something. The Holy Spirit is trying to show you that was once barred is now open. Because look what he says, not yet. <laughs> Signifying hope, expectation. A day will come when the throne room will be wide open. For everyone to come. It was not just not open. It was not open yet. And you see this contrast. Of before Christ and after Christ. That the priests were allowed to go into that one place. But not into the most holy place. But now in the new covenant. The holy of holies has been opened. The very presence of God. Both chambers become one. The priests would minister yes. But not really. They could not go in. 
They could not, even though sins were atoned for, even though once a year sins were atoned for for the nation, it only temporarily removed it. It would never done away with. Look what our text tells us. Because of that reality, verse 10, verse 9, gifts and sacrifices cannot, look what it says. What about our conscience? It can't make it perfect. The conscience of the worshiper can't be perfect because of these shadows, verse 10. They only deal with food and drink. Various washing, regulation for the body, imposed until the time of reformation. And the question is, why? Why is our conscience not perfect? Why cannot be complete? With all these sacrifices and all these things going on, what's the problem? Well, what is a conscience to begin with? What is your conscience? Conscience is that inner self, that, that area of our inner self, the inner sense that deciphering moral right and wrong, ethnical principles of right and wrong. And, and for those who are children of God, it is knowing that we are answerable for him. Our motives of actions, we're creating the Imago Dei, we'll stand before him, we'll give an account of our lives, and we know that we are sinners. We have failed to keep God's moral standard. We have a, an inner conscience that knew we were guilty, that there's need to be forgiveness and, and cleansing and restoration. It's that, it's that idea that I've sinned against God. But if you're here this morning and you don't know God and you don't know Christ and you're not a follower of Christ, you too, the Bible says, has a conscience. Romans tells us that everyone born has a conscience, a sense of right and wrong. All humans, including Gentiles, Romans 2, verse 14 says, we have a conscience that we know we will face judgment. But the Bible tells us that what we do, and maybe you're here this morning, and what we do as non-believers, we sear our consciences like a hot iron. So we don't think, we don't feel, we put it out. We, we neglect the truth. We suppress the truth, Romans 1. But it's there. So think about your conscience for a minute. Even as believers, Think about Old Testament worship and your conscience that every year you have to go back and do the same thing over and over again. Every day you're going and watching the sacrifices of animals, the atoning of sin, the forgiveness of sin, on and on, day, day, day after day, year after year. What would that do to your conscience? F.F. Bruce writes this. The really effective barrier to a man or woman's free access to God is an inward and not a material one. It exists in the conscience. It is only when the conscience is purified that one is set free to approach God without reservation and offer him acceptable service and worship. As the Old Testament priests drew nearer to the presence of God, they feared dread of death because God looks upon the heart and they know that they're sinners. Every year, every day, sacrifice to made to remind you of that reality. Year after year, you take your goats, your lambs, and you go up, and it's repeated over and over. The very repetition reminded us that there was no final forgiveness provided by these lambs, by these animals, that we were still guilty. There had to be something better to cleanse your conscience. And although the old covenant worship and its symbols was an act of grace and of mercy was never meant to be permanent. Each and every piece of furniture, every action taken by the priest was a beautiful picture that there would need it to be a permanent atonement to deal with our sins, with our conscience, with our guilt once and for all. 
Guilt was never relieved under the old covenant. Not that the old covenant was wrong. Not that the old covenant worship was wrong. The problem didn't lie with God. The problem lied with us. His conscience is clear. Right? Until the time of reformation. You know, it's interesting that word reformation. God gives us these pictures pointing to what? A time of reformation. The word reformation means making something straight, setting things right. These old covenant acts of worship, the sacrifice, the ceremony, were set right. Set right, made right by the new covenant. The old covenant were pictures, shadows pointing through and beyond themselves to a promised reality. The perfect would come, the day would come when the realities would come and all the shadows would pass away and that perfect one is Jesus. Verse 11. But when Christ appeared, ah, when Christ appeared as our high priest, all the shadows faded away. Let let me tell you how before we get to verse 11, just a couple of things you need to know. God gave Israel the lampstand to show them that he was the source of light and life. And yet John opens up and John 1 says that Jesus is the tabernacle. He dwelt among us. In him was life and him him was the light of men. It was the feast of booths and Jesus was there with his disciples the last days. And in the Feast of Booth, they would celebrate God's uh, provision, not only for their, fest- for, their, for their food and their harvest, but how God provided during those wandering years. They'd build booths. On the last day of the feast, they would bring out these giant flamed lamps in the outer court. Seven feet high, they said. It, it lit the entire temple, even part of Jerusalem, some say, showing God's faithfulness in in the pillar of fire as God provided for them. It was there that many people say that when Jesus was there in John 8 and said, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, right? But will have the light of life. The showbread, the 12 loaves of 12 tribes, now to have 12 disciples was 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 symbolic of their dependency upon God. The basic food, necessity, bread, replaced every single week to remind the Israelites, do not doubt my providential care, God was saying. It was the presence of bread, literally faced before God as they gathered together and reminded, they were reminded of God's faithfulness and his provision. Also, the table of bread, remembered, was something that was symbolic of fellowship meal. They would eat before the presence of God. Do you see what's happening? Jesus in John chapter 6 feeds the multitudes with just a few loaves and he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Yeah, God provides our daily needs, but what's most important, family, is that we are resting in our relationship and in our communion with God himself. Our deepest need is to have fellowship with God. The golden incense, this, this, med, this mediatory work, this intercessory prayer pointed at Jesus. We talk so much about his intercessory work. He's the light of the world. He's the provision of the world. He's the mediator. The great altar of bronze we saw where they would sacrifice their animals. The biggest piece in the whole place. Thousands upon thousands, probably millions of animals slaughtered, blood spilled. In abundance, in a substitutionary way for their sins. Yet Jesus is our substitute. 
He shed out his blood for us on the cross. And Leviticus 1.9, we talked about the Old Testament sacrifice, and Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, talking about the new covenant, have the same thing in common, that these sacrifices were a pleasing aroma, a fragrant offering unto God. The brazen altar is fulfilled in the person of Christ. Jesus is the manna inside the Ark of the Covenant on the bread of life. Your father ate manna of the wilderness and died. I have come down. I am the manna from heaven. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If you eat of this bread, you will live forever. And the bread that I will give you is the life of the world is my flesh. Do you see? All these things point to Christ, the Ark of the Covenant, the actual Ark itself, the place where God dwells, the sign of the covenant, the rule and reign of God located in the Holy of Holies. Colossians says, in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All these things point to Jesus. Verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, heaven itself, not made with hands, not of this creation, he, Jesus, entered once for all into where? The holy place. The most holy place, the holy of holies, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but how? By his own blood, thus securing, obtaining an eternal redemption. Jesus didn't slip into the holy of holies really quickly and, and then just, just leave amidst this, this cloud, sprinkling his blood and then exiting and then coming back next year. No, he gave his own precious blood once and for all and sat down at the right hand of the Father for it was finished. Everything in the tabernacle the earthly tabernacle, the bronze altar, the laver, the, the, the lampstand, the altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant, the temple itself pointed to the greater and better high priest who entered not earthly places, but the most holy place in heaven and not by the blood of animals, but by his own blood, he entered the most holy place once and for all. It is eternally done. And look at that last part of verse 12. It says he secured an eternal salvation. The word secured or obtained in some of your translations means this. To find a thing, listen, to find a thing sought after, to discover. It speaks of an act of obtaining something, seeking for it, finding it, and then appropriating it. Why is that important? Because on the cross, it was Jesus who went in obedience to the Father, who died for our sins in our place. Listen to me and we'll close here. God could not and will not embrace sin. So how can a just God who requires justice be satisfied and able to have fellowship with us, God's, the, the ones who've broken God's law, sinned against God, and give mercy and grace to those who offended him? It was sought it was found, it was secured, it was obtained, it, uh, up, obtained and solved by the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. That the judge himself steps down from his judgment throne, takes upon himself the guilt, shame, and penalty for the sinner, and in this way justice was satisfied. The floodgates of mercy and grace are open to all those who call upon the name, who trust in that perfect and better high priest named Jesus, the Messiah, found and procured salvation, obtained it, secured it for eternally, eternally for us, for our redemption. He paid the price. 
Sinners are slaves of sin, the Bible says. We're slaves to sin and we are bound. Jesus, by his sacrifice, it says, paid our redemption, liberated us from the power of sin, the penalty of sin. And Ephesians tells us, by how? How did he do this? By giving himself up as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Therefore, it is Christ alone. It's not a shadow. It's the reality of Christ who came. All the Old Testament foreshadowing that we've talked about points to the reality of Christ. You know, in the New Testament, we have things that we do that foreshadow, or at least point back. Not point forward, but point back. We have baptism. We do baptism, full immersions here where the death, burial, and resurrection is the picture of that baptism as a person dies and rises again. Here we have the Lord's Supper. We have the bread representing the body of Christ. We have the cup of juice representing the blood that was shed as we look back to the cross. Have you trusted Christ today? Is your conscience clear? Not because you're perfect, but because you know the spotless Lamb of God went into that place of the Holy of Holies and died for your sins, shed his blood, went into the grave, rose from the dead so that you can know that your sins have been forgiven. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, and I've done a lot of bad things in my life, the blood of Jesus is sufficient. Jesus is superior and he is sufficient. Trust him today. Rest upon him today. Let the blood of Jesus cleanse you today. And maybe today's the first day you've heard this and you've been convicted of your sin. Well, turn from your sin. I no longer want to be married to that. I no longer want to be a slave to that. I'm no longer going to be running after that. I am now going to turn from that. I'm going to turn to Jesus. Trusting his death, believing on his cross. He died for my sins, rose from the dead, and now I'm walking with him. And trust him today. The band's going to come up. Music's going to play. I want to invite you all to come to the table if you belong to Jesus Christ. Where you can take the bread and drink of the cup and remember his death for you and your sin. If you're not a believer... Just let the table pass. This is for believers who have trusted in Christ. But we want to talk to you. We love you. We're glad you're here. But we'll, we'll talk to you about the gospel. You can come see me, Pastor Ricky, or Pastor Chris, Pastor Bill, and we'd love to talk to you about Jesus. So the band can come on up. What we're going to do is we're going to play music. You, me, we are going to confess our sins quietly in your seat. We're going to repent, which means turn from our sins. But we're not going to stay there. Because the pathway has been made, we have access to God. We're going to celebrate the work of Christ because it's been done. It's been finished. And we'll come, we'll take the bread, and we'll take the cup, and we'll partake of communion together. Two lines right down the center so we can move it faster. Have you trusted Christ? Let's pray. Father, we are thankful not only for this Old Testament symbols and pictures that point to Christ, We're thankful for the fulfillment that Christ offers and Christ has done for us in our place. We're thankful for the sacrifice and the access we have now to you through the shed blood of Jesus. And now, Father, as we partake of these symbols, this bread representing the body of Jesus that was broken, the blood representing the blood that was shed on our behalf, Father, may we ask that you would come and and reveal to us your glory, your beauty, and give us faith, And give us strength to repent and to believe and to celebrate your awesome, great work.
of forgiveness of sins through the blood of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Get glory as we respond now in song, in communion. May you get glory in it all. In Jesus' name, amen.